Thank you, Simeon. Thank you, Carl. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is James Walden. If we haven't met yet, um, one of uh, the pastors here. And um, in our first service, we, um, we, we had a baby dedication, and Landon Jones was set to, to do the dedication. But uh, unfortunately, last night, uh, Liam had to go to the hospital, and Liam is, is now in surgery for an appendectomy. So I'd like to just kind of pray for them uh, during that time as well. And... Um, and pray for our time uh, together in the Word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do lift up Lan and Laura. We know that, Lord, they have, um, uh, they have had a number of challenges, Lord, over the last year that has just seemed to come in wave after wave. And so we pray for our brother and our sister that you would sustain them with your grace. Help us as the hands and feet of Christ in their local church. Lift them up and to show them and incarnate to them your love that, Lord Jesus, you have fully expressed here on earth in your life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And Lord, I pray that uh, that grace that, that flows from heaven where Christ, you are now seated, would flow through our hands and our words to bless them. And we pray, Lord, that as the surgeons are at work, Lord, now that they are, their hands would be guided by you, that it would be a simple procedure, that Liam would even be able to be released today with, uh, and go home with pain meds. Uh, and and it'd be a quick recovery, Lord. But we thank you that you're a Father who does care for us and is eager to hear our prayers. And so as we dive into this time this morning of your word, we ask, Lord, that you would speak, that you would speak to us, your people. Open our eyes and our ears and help me to speak, Lord, as a man who is fallible in thought and very fallible in speech. Lord, help me to speak clearly and truly that you would be honored and your people would be strengthened. And those who don't know, Lord, the goodness of your grace would come to see and taste and know that you're good. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, unfortunately for our kids here, uh, our children's sermon in the last service was done by Daniel, and he did a great job. And Daniel had to go home, so that means you're stuck with me. Sorry, guys. Uh, So I want to talk a little bit about mirrors. Have you guys ever been to a fun house where it has wacky mirrors that are distorted and weird? And when you look in it, it makes you look very different, like maybe really tall or really short and really stout. Have you guys ever seen that? Or at Rolly, like one that makes you look wavy. Have you guys ever been to like a fun house? On the screen, you'll see a picture uh, of an example of what I mean, the kind of the silly mirrors um, in fact, I'm told, I'm told that the girls' room back there has a mirror that isn't very flattering, that sort of draws you out. I don't know. Well, that seems cruel, whoever put that in there. Uh, but uh, mirrors are, are, they still reflect back us, right? I mean, you see in that image, you see the young, the young man, I can't tell, I can't tell who, what he is, but uh, I'm assuming it's a guy, and um, you can, you can see true aspects of him. His, the eye color is accurate. Facial hair, it looks like he has, so probably a guy, um, uh, is accurately there. The jacket, he's wearing a jacket. All the, so there's a lot of truth in this mirror, but there's a lot of distortion tr- too. And uh, one of the things uh, that I learned in, in school when I went to go be trained for ministry was that relationships are like mirrors, And in every relationship with your mom or dad, with your auntie, your grandma, relationships with your other family members like your brothers, your sisters, 
your relationships with your friends, the kids down the street that maybe sometimes you get into fights with, right? They're all mirrors. And you see yourself back in their interactions with you. You see them too, but you see also reflections of yourself. And because we're all mirrors ourselves of God, we're, we're image bearers, we, we reflect God, but our mirrors are all a little bit distorted because of sin. Sin has distorted our mirrors. So we reflect a lot of truth, but it's often very distorted too. And that's doubly true when we're in relationship. So we see a lot of true things about us. We learn things from mom and dad about ourselves. And, and even our relationship with God, we, we learn things through others about God and ourselves. But the Word of God, we're told, is a true mirror. It isn't distorted. It's an accurate reflection of who we are. And this morning, we see in this text the story of Amos going and speaking God's truth but the mirror, when it was held up to God's people, it wasn't flattering. And it wasn't flattering because the mirror was distorted. It wasn't flattering because what they saw, a true image of themselves back, wasn't pretty. And they naturally didn't like it. They didn't like it. Uh, you guys notice that sometimes I sit in that chair at the front end, but I notice on the on the on the video feed, you can see my head with my balding spot right there. So I moved over there. I don't want to, it's a part of me I don't see, I don't like to see. When I first saw it, I was shocked, you know? Uh, but those parts of ourselves are there, and whether we see them or not, and God's mirror reflects that back. And they didn't like it. And Amaziah, the priest who represented, he was the mouthpiece for Israel, basically said, we don't want to hear this truth. We don't like what you're saying. In fact, your words are oppressive to us. And they made Amos the enemy because he reflected back them and they didn't like what they saw. And so they basically were trying to shatter the mirror. Well, did you know, I mean, Amos was just a picture. He was just a mirror of the light reflected into the world. But did you know that in Jesus, the light of the world himself came into the world. That's what John's gospel says, that the light of men shone in the world. But here is what happened. We didn't like what we saw. And we pushed the light of the world the same way Amaziah, this priest, is trying to push Amos out of Israel, to get him to shut up, just be quiet. They're we did the same thing to Jesus. We pushed him out of the world and up onto a cross. We tried to silence God's word because we couldn't bear it anymore. But it was that very light that we rejected and that very act of pushing Jesus out of our world and onto a cross that he saves people like you and I who push the truth away. It's by that very means that the light was used to pull us, though we pushed it away, to pull us into the light and to become what the Bible calls children of light, where once before we were children of darkness. And that's how good and kind God is. He does show us the bad news in the mirror, but the mirror changes us as we behold the image of of ourselves in the, in, the, in the Word of God, we ourselves are transformed, the Bible says, from one degree of glory to another. And so 
that's our prayer for this morning. That as we, as we look at this story, we will not just see the ugly truths about us. There's many wonderful truths about us too because we're made in God's image. But we'll also be changed. We'll be changed even this morning. And so let's dive right in and let's look at the mirror of Amaziah. What do we see in Amaziah that images us? Now, um, speaking here now to everyone, I want to remind us where we were last week. Last week, uh, we saw three visions of the prophet Amos, the seer, as Amaziah rightly calls him. Oh, seer, go home. He was a seer. He had a number of visions. And the first two visions we saw were possible futures that God relented from when Amos prayed as a mediator on behalf of Israel. And then the second, or sorry, the third image was a symbolic um, object that God then interprets. And it was the plumb line. And it's kind of, he says, I dropped my plumb line among my people. And Amos, in a way, embodies the plumb line. He's the, he's the prophet who represents the truth of God, the true measure of God, the true mirror, and gets dropped into God's people, and then they reject him. They push him out. So if this sermon had a title, it would be Pushing Back the Plumb Line. And so what seems to be happening in this narrative, why does this narrative, this historical little story, interrupt the vision we see here in chapter 7 and then the same, not the same, but a similar vision is picked up in chapter 8. And both visions have the same conclusion, namely, I will no longer spare my people. So between these two visions, you get this weird interruption of this narrative. Why is that? Why in the middle of the visions do we get a little story about where Amos was at the time preaching, namely at Bethel, using Nate O'Neill's clever image of Amos as a Mexican migrant worker crossing the line to, to preach against the mighty U.S. of A. Imagine this Mexican migrant farmer standing in D.C. in the shadow of the National Cathedral proclaiming the eminent demise of America. It's a very similar image that's happening here. He's at Bethel. He's at the, the National Cathedral, the National Temple, proclaiming the imminent demise of northern Israel. And what is the response of official Israel in the mouth of Amaziah, the priest? Uh, he wasn't a priest according to biblical law. Remember, Jeroboam I invented a whole system of religion in northern Israel, including a new priesthood, so that the northern Israelites would not take their money, their resources, and their devotion down to the southern Judah. He didn't want that, that reallocation of resources into their, their enemy, Judah, in the south. So he created new religious centers in northern Israel to keep the resources at home. <laughs> and so he invents a priesthood, and Amaziah is one such priest. And no doubt he was in full regalia and very impressive looking. But Amaziah's response and pushing back on the plumb line seals the judgment. So in between these two, these two visions of I will no longer spare them is this story of Amos preaching to them showing his pleading on behalf of Israel, and they're still rejecting him. So it seals the deal. It sort of shows the justice of God's decree. In fact, it's interesting, nowhere does Amos ever say this per se, but when Amaziah reports the prophecy to Jeroboam II, who was much later after Jeroboam I, 
Verse 11, Jeroboam shall die by the sword and Israel must go into exile away from his land. He didn't say that. But what's interesting is when he confirms the judgment to come, he uses Amaziah's own words against him. The very last line in verse 17, Israel will surely go into exile away from its land. It's as if, as you have spoken, so it will be done to you. Yes. Oh, right. You're right. I haven't read it yet. That's a good call. So let's do that. Let's read that now. Amos chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. So that's on the screen um, uh, as we were driving. Thank you, Regina, for reminding us. <laughs> it's good to read the scripture before we expound it. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Uh, not a, not a, uh, the, the, the friendliest, uh, especially kid-friendly text. Um, uh, and as I, as I said in the first service after this text was read, um, we acknowledge as we've been going through Amos that these have been hard words. Um, you know, I understand many people thinking, James, COVID's been hard enough. Do, do we really need to be beat up with Amos? <laughs> and my hope is this. Uh, one, my excuse is this isn't my idea. It was Jay Wills. Uh, <laughs> secondly, uh, we were planning on doing this in the summer. So uh, all of it's been sort of changed, interrupted. This is the, the new world of COVID, right? Total interruption. But but it, as heavy as these words are, they're a lot like Jeremiah's words against Judah later. Uh, and, and Jeremiah described his own words as a hammer. The word of the Lord is like a hammer that shatters rocks. But I want to be clear, the hammer does not meant to crush us. It's meant to shatter into smithereens the chains that bind us and enslave us. It's a, rock against, it's, it's a hammer against the rock of stone that, in, that entombs our hearts. And so he's shattering us, not in order to condemn us or to kill us, but rather to resurrect us, to call us to life and to liberate us, these words. And so that's, that's the hope, too, as we see the light. At first, it's going to burn our eyes, and we're going to push it away. But in fact, it's as we draw near to the light that we find ourselves free. And so with, those, with that caveat... We see that the, the judgment of God here 
has entered into the world of Jesus, as we said in the children's message. And not just a, a picture of it or a representation of his word, but the word of God himself entered into history. But here was the verdict according to the Apostle John. On the screen you'll see from John 3. And this is the judgment. I like how the NIV renders it. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world. And what was the response? People love the darkness rather than the light. That is the world's response. That is our response. It's our response in our natural fallen condition. When we see the light, when we see a true mirror, we want to push it away. Rather than the light, because their works were evil, and our deeds were exposed in it, and we didn't want to be seen. We didn't want to be exposed. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But there is an exception to this general rule, the verdict about the light's entrance and manifestation in the world. And that is this, whoever does what is true comes to the light. But this is interesting. So that it may be clearly seen that his works are super righteous, that she's incredible. No, that his works have been carried out in God. It's revealed by the very act of coming into the light. It's been revealed that God has been at work in us. That it is the work of God that draws us. It is the, the kindness of God that draws us near when in our own flesh and our own natural wiring is to run away. But in God's kindness and patience, he draws us near. And so as we go through this sermon, we're going to see some maybe not very pretty things about ourselves in the, the mirror of Amaziah and the mirror of Amos even. But my hope is it doesn't cause us to run away but to draw near to the light because the light, it's not just bright, it's warm. And in that warmth, you'll find your heart softened and you will find life. And so let's dig in. Verses 10 through 11, Amos says, uh, or Amaziah says to Amos, O seer, go get away to the land of Judah. Run away, run home. Eat your bread there, prophesy there, but never again. Oh, whoops, I'm in verse 12, aren't I? Verse 10, Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. They are oppressive. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile. What we're going to see here in the mirror of Amaziah is how we likewise, in our natural condition, and whether we're a Christian or not, we all do this. We all do this. It's even the most sanctified among us have this natural tendency. We go from slandering truth we do not like to finally silencing it. And so let's, let's see how Amaziah does that. First, he, he notes that this is a conspiracy. He re-narrates he re what Amos is doing as a political conspiracy against King Jeroboam. It's no longer a prophet sent by God proclaiming against the house of Israel God's eminent judgment. It is now a political move to undermine the king. So as we reflect on this, I want to put on the screen to you one of the most searching <laughs> reflections on the ninth commandment I've ever read. It's from the Westminster Larger Catechism. I have it hanging up in my office. If you ever want a mirror that really looks up close and personal in your heart, 
Look at the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment, you remember, is um, that we, you will not bear false witness against your neighbor. So here we go. The, the first uh, question, question one, number 144, asks, what are the duties required in the ninth commandment? And here's the answer. The duties required in the ninth are the preserving and promoting of truth between people. Truth is sacred, according to Scripture. Bending truth, shading truth, exaggerating, all of that violates the sacredness of truth, especially among people, because our relationships with one another are built on trust, and trust, trust has to be built on truth. So truth is critical to love and to human flourishing. And the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. We are, we are to be zealous to protect the good name of our neighbors. A charitable esteem of our neighbors. We don't assume the worst of them. When something weird happens, we don't assume the worst. You know, there's a great saying among uh, some leadership guru has said this, but they said when, when an organization or a person acts in a way that we do not expect and we don't understand, we fill in the gap in the most pathological way imaginable. Right? We tend to give the strangest read to things because we often are not charitable or we are, we are, we are wary of others and their motives. But this calls us to have a charitable esteem for our neighbors. We love and desire and rejoice in their good name. When others praise them, we're not jealous and envious. And we sorrow for and we cover up their infirmities rather than expose them. We, love covers a multitude of sins. So we don't share in our neighbor's infirmities with others. We cover them and protect them. We protect their reputation. Freely acknowledging their gifts and graces. We're not, we're not um, what's the term? We're not stingy with our praises of one another, right? We're quick to, to say, oh, she's so good at that, or he's amazing in this way. Uh, and unwillingness to admit an evil report. Someone has something nasty to say about somebody else to you. I'm not even, I, we shouldn't even be willing to, to, to give it daylight. Like, like, why are you telling me this? Have you talked to them about this, right? We should shut that down immediately. I don't want to receive an evil report about somebody, especially somebody I'm not really have any business knowing that about uh, concerning them discouraging talebearers so someone comes to you and you're like hey maybe we shouldn't talk about this i know that will make you look like super pious but so be it right we're going to talk about that um, and then flatterers god hates a flattering tongue according to the scriptures because flattery is false and it's manipulative right it's trying to get into people's good graces and so flattery breaks the ninth commandment slandering and I read that list, and we're not even halfway done. That is the most convicting thing I can read. Um, especially one who makes his living by speaking. And all of us are in this boat where, well, this is how James, the half-brother of Jesus, put it. If anyone thinks he's religious and yet doesn't control his tongue, his religion is worthless. Your religion is worth, if your religion doesn't actually bridle your tongue, it doesn't actually control who you speak about and how you represent them, your religion is not serving you any good, it's not serving anyone else any good, is what James is saying there. He says we all stumble in many ways as fallen people, but if anyone doesn't stumble in his speech, there's a perfect person. That shows you how difficult it is to control our tongues. And yet Jesus says, 
How can you speak good when you are full of evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person speaks out of the treasure of their heart, and the evil person brings up the evil treasure in their heart. In other words, our speech, no matter how good we try to behave, our speech will inevitably betray us. How we talk about others, even how we talk about ourselves, can reveal that brokenness that's in us. And now when you see that in you, again, remember, this is not the, that light, that image you're seeing reflected back from Scripture is not meant to, to cause us to run away in hiding, but to confess the truth and receive blessing. God doesn't curse us when we come to the light, the way we often curse others, or we curse ourselves when in the light we see our sin and we judge and condemn ourselves. Rather, God offers us blessing in the exposing searchlight of his presence. He doesn't expose us to shame us, but to bring us near. And so the next question of the catechism, what is, what is forbidden in the ninth commandment, says this, all prejudicing the truth. So, so shading the truth to make it go the way you want it to go, to make it look the way you want it to look. Um, uh, prejudicing the name of our good neighbor, our neighbors as well as our own, making myself look better than I really am, making my neighbors look worse than they really are, especially in public judicature, so like in court of law, calling evil good, good evil, right? We see this all the time when we justify political leaders on the left or right side of the aisle. We can call bad behavior good and justify it. This is, uh, this is a serious infraction of the Ninth Commandment. Speaking the truth unseasonably, this one hits me really hard. In other words, you can be right and dead wrong at the same time. You can speak the truth, but you're not speaking in love. You're not speaking from a place of humility as one who has known the judgment of God and the mercy of God and speaks in a way of one who knows mercy, who has received great mercy for all of their sins. You can speak the truth and be dead wrong. Because it's spoken unseasonably, not in love. I think it was Francis Schaeffer that said, surely the ugliest thing in the world is found, is orthodoxy found in the mouth of hatred. Orthodoxy in the mouth of hatred. And that is an infraction. How dare us take up the, 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 the name of the Lord in anger, in hatred, in judgment, right? We, we break the ninth commandment. Uh, or maliciously to a wrong end, or perverting it to a wrong meaning, doubtful, equivocal expressions. When we see them, we prejudice them, we, we, we twist them to what we want them to mean. Slandering, backbiting, detracting, tailbearing, which is gossiping, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censuring. God, is this like Twitter. It's like this all social media, right? Every millisecond of every day, billions upon billions of infractions of the ninth commandment. And guys, what I want us to know is that that's the culture we swim in. From our political leaders who break the ninth commandment continually, all the way to the, the trolls on Twitter. Like the whole, it's, and we would kid ourselves if we think we are not affected by this, that we're not being discipled by this. And shaped into this. I know I am, and I have to often find, find myself in the mirror of God's Word, catch myself, and it's not pretty. 
I mean, I had a fight with Stacy last night. You know, it's, preaching a sermon right after a fight with your wife is the worst thing in the world. And just, and I did not give her the benefit of the doubt. I was not charitable in my assumptions. I sinned against her and broke the ninth commandment. But look what he goes on to say here. This is, the, this is the sin I really want us to look at. Misconstruing attentions, words, and actions. This is what we see Amaziah doing. Look again at verse 11. Not only has he called it conspiracy, which isn't a conspiracy. Remember Isaiah? Don't call everything conspiracy. This people calls conspiracy. How appropriate is that today? <laughs> right? But here, likewise, verse 11, he twists Amos' words. Jeroboam will die by the sword. Amos didn't say that. He's taking verse 9. If you look at verse 9, look at the very last sentence of verse 9, the first full idea. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. That is a, that is a description, a very programmatic one, a very like, typical description of the fall of the dynasty of Jeroboam, that his house would collapse. This has been twisted now to believe it's a political conspiracy. That you, you just made a, a death threat on the president, right? Twisting Amos' words to get him in even deeper trouble. Misconstruing it intentionally to get as much political power against Amos as he can. How often do we do that with our opponents? We just read the worst possible interpretation of their actions. The worst possible interpretation. Um... It goes on, guys. I'll, I'll, I'll end with this one, okay? I promise. I know this is like, James, stop, please. Uh, denying the gifts and graces of God and others, like not giving them credit where they're right. If you're on the political right side of the spectrum, do you often see where the left is correct? Do you acknowledge it? Can you go, that's actually a good point. And if you're on the left side, can you do that with the right and say, actually, this is a really important point they're making. And our side of the aisle usually gets this wrong. Like, are we able to acknowledge truth wherever it's found, right? Or can we only acknowledge it when it's on our side? <laughs> Calvin called that blasphemy. Because if ever I see truth, no matter what its source, and I deny it, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit as the fount of truth. Uh, aggravating smaller faults, unnecessary discovering of infirmities. Talk about every political ad right now on TV. Every fault of someone, I find it and I show it up on the screen, right? We are immersed in the, in the infractions of the Ninth Commandment. Fault, raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports, stopping our ears against a just defense. I don't want to hear, the, I don't want to hear how you're going to defend your guy. Evil suspicion. All right, so this is the conspiratorial mindset that Amaziah is on here. There's a conspiracy against you, O Jeroboam. And there's a lot of things I could say about the fact that so many Christians in America today um, are given to a conspiratorial mindset, myself included. When you grow up in a culture like ours, when you are shaped in a culture where through social media you feel, and you are, constantly manipulated, sold to, advertised to and controlled, you're going to be radically cynical, right? And so that cynicism leads to a conspiratorial mindset. I just want to say one thing about this because we've got to move on. The Bible says before we ever really seriously entertain something, certainly before we pass it on to somebody else, it must be established 
by two or three witnesses. In other words, it needs to have a kind of public vindication as true. And the very definition of conspiracies is they've not been publicly demonstrated as true. For that reason, Christians can never be heavily involved in conspiracy theories. And if we pass along a conspiracy that has not been verified as true, we break the ninth commandment, even if the conspiracy proves to be true, because you didn't know that it was true. <laughs> you didn't know. It hadn't been established in a public court. And so we're passing along things we don't know are true. We are infracting upon the ninth commandment. So I'll, I'll stop there. But again, remember, this, all this, I'm very exposed by this, guys. This is very humbling sermon. This calls us to repentance because God forgives. God gives us grace when we misspeak. And so the best thing we can do is confess with our tongues and receive grace here. But this cynicism is seen even further in verse 12. O seer, Amaziah says, go flee away to land of Judah and eat your bread there, prophesy there. What is he saying? He's not only just saying, get out of Dodge, we're done with you. He's saying, you preach for profit, right? You're a preacher, man, and you'll preach if you get your paycheck. Go earn your, your money somewhere else. So this would be like an, um, some impressive uh, official standing at the National Cathedral saying to our Mexican fiber, migrant worker, look, Go back to Mexico, okay? We know you're just, you're trying, to, you're trying to make a buck, make a splash. Go back to Mexico and earn your pesos there, brother. That's, that's what's being said here. So what is he doing? He's cynically reducing Amos to just making a buck. And that's what we do with each other. There's a great little, um, uh, you can see it on YouTube, a little video that summarizes C.S. Lewis's uh, description of what I think describes all the debates we're having right now. It's called bulverism, B-U-L-V-E-R-I-S-M. When you read, when you watch it, you're like, wow, that's like every discussion we're having right now. But in bulverism, what C.S. Lewis says is, we don't have to take another person's argument seriously. I just have to find out why they believe it. And then once I find out why they believe it, I can hand, quickly dismiss them, right? So Lewis uses the example of Freud. You believe in God because you have daddy issues. I don't have to engage in the debate of whether the argument's for God. I can just say, you have father issues, right? Or you have these moral hang-ups because you have all these, these issues with sexuality. And so that's why I can write. You have phobias. That's why I can just dismiss the argument. Or uh, on the other side, he talks about Marxism. And you hold those views because you're bourgeoisie. Now, these all may, may be true. You may hold these things because you have hang-ups with dad, right? But not necessarily. But in bulverism, I don't even have to engage your argument. I can just write you off. You hold that view because you're rich. You hold that view because you're poor. You hold that view because you're white. You hold that view because you're black. And then I can just totally dismiss your argument and never engage it. This is cynicism. It's the cynicism that doesn't believe in truth. There's only desires for power over others. And everything is just a power grab. And that's exactly what is being accused here of our friend Amos. And it's, this isn't a new move. And you see it with the apostles. The apostle Paul has to deal with this. In, in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul it begins this address because a number of leaders, of false leaders, have come into Corinth and said, look, yeah, Paul's got some good stuff, sure. But he, 
he's out for your money. That's why he's here. That whole Jerusalem campaign thing where he's raising funds, you know that's going to his back pocket. And very quickly, a number of the Corinthians are like, hmm, maybe they're right. And they're starting to distance themselves from Paul. And so Paul, really in 2 Corinthians, he's sort of like saying, guys, you know me. You know my ministry. You know how I collect the funds. I don't even see them, right? Somebody, third party collects it. You know, he has to, he's a little bit on the defensive to say, guys, you know better than this. But cynicism has infected them. And a conspiratorial mindset, which is a, a diseased mindset, has infected them. And so they question it. And so look what Paul says on the screen here from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry, the ministry that God has given to me as an apostle, he says, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We don't give up. We have, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. We don't, we're not giving you a part of Scripture that sounds good and then ignoring the parts that are, maybe put us to the test a little bit or expose us. Rather, he says, we refuse to practice that kind of cunning or to tamper with Scripture. But by the open statement of the truth, listen to this, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. What Paul's saying is, scrutinize me. You know my life. It's very public. You know my message. It's consistent with my life. He's not claiming sinlessness, but he's claiming faithfulness, consistency. He's saying, I don't have an, there's no ulterior motives. I'm proclaiming Christ. And him crucified. And I as your servant. And he says, search your conscience later. He says, you'll know. You'll know. The conscience is key. It's fallen. But God has preserved our conscience to know good, true, and beautiful when we see it. And so he commends them. But notice, people, of course, still reject Paul's gospel. And he says, and if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So there is a power at work in the world that blinds. There's a power at work in the world that obscures. And that power is very strongly operating today. It is the power we're seeing here that slanders truth into a lie, that twists it, that cynically reads it, and that can't see anything except asking the cynical question, well, what's in it for them? And so how's our, how healthy is our mind and heart uh, regarding truth and the belief in truth? Are we pursuing truth? Are we running hard after it in the belief that truth is there, that God is the God of truth, that Christ is the truth unveiled in all of his glorious fullness, and that his ministers, though fallible, his people, his saints, are children of light. All right, well, we've been reflecting on, on Amaziah. I want to quickly here to end reflect on Amos how Amos is a mirror for us. Because we can kind of sympathize here with Amos. He's being grossly misunderstood, grossly misrepresented. He's being criminalized in his actions. Being, sort of his, his, his prophetic message has been turned into a political message, a coup against the king. And so we can relate to this, can't we? We can look in the mirror of Amos and we can see how he might feel. Standing there in the shadow of the national cathedral. Did you notice the language Amaziah uses to speak of it? It's very grandiose. This is the sanctuary of the king. The temple of the kingdom. Like, who are you to stand against this pipsqueak? Go home. 
right? We know what that's like to, to see the great big power and sway of the world and to feel tiny and insignificant and very crushable <laughs> and be told, well, who are you, right? And so we are intimidated as Amos is into silence. Amos wasn't intimidated, but Amos felt intimidated into silence. And we can often feel that way. I feel like if I speak up, I'll be misrepresented, I'll be misconstrued, I'll be ridiculed. I might even lose my job at certain points. I've talked to a number of you over the years that have had critical junctures in your job, your career, where you said, if I tell the truth on this, I might lose my job. That happens. Did you guys, just a couple statistics here. Last year, 2,983 Christians around the world were killed for their faith. That's eight Christians a day. 3,711 were arrested and imprisoned and or imprisoned. 9,488 churches or church buildings were attacked. This is the normal Christian life, that when we stand up for truth, truth and love, we will be pushed back on. And it's easy for us to want to, like Paul says, you lose heart. We want to lose heart in the face of that constant ridicule or cynicism. But I want to encourage you, by the grace of God, you can and you will persevere to reflect back as mirrors of the light back into a world that pushes against the darkness. And the good news is this, as you shine the light into the darkness, though a lot of people will reject it, some will be brought to the light to reveal the work of God. I know what it's like to be misrepresented, to have the worst motives read into your actions. And many of you know what that's like. Maybe all of us have had that happen to us. So we know how hard it is to face that day after day. But I want you to know you are in good company. In fact, if you are rejected, ridiculed, misread, cynically dismissed because of Jesus, you know what Jesus calls you? The world calls you cursed. You know what Jesus calls you? Blessed. Yeah, look on the screen from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets, so they persecuted Amos, so they persecuted Jeremiah, so they persecuted Isaiah. For they were persecuted, the, as they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, today is All Saints Day, All Hallows Day. We don't traditionally celebrate that in the Evangelical Free Church uh, as par part of our evangelical tradition. But it's an ancient tradition to celebrate all the saints who've passed on are now safely home. But I'm reminded as I think about All, all Saints Day of the, the passage in Hebrews that says, how great of a cloud of witnesses are around us. The saints that have gone before us, who persevered in a world that rejected them, that would not receive them, a world that the author of Hebrews says was not worthy of them. They, in their persistent pursuit of this, without finding its fruition in this life, declared, the author of Hebrews says, that this home was not their world, that they had a better city prepared by God coming. Guys, when we as Christians in America don't feel at home in America, don't panic that like, oh, we're losing the culture. If we feel at home in America, something's very wrong. 
You know, Tim Keller asked, where do Christians fit in the two-party system in America? You know his answer, we don't. I don't fit in the Republican Party. I don't fit in the Democratic Party. I don't fit in the Libertarian Party or the Green Party. We don't fit because we're not of this world and America is not our home. And so we feel alien and exiles here. And that's good. It's exactly who we're called to be. I like what Tabidi Anabwail says. He says, to be politically homeless is one of the best things that could happen to the spiritual lives of people who are elect exiles, sojourners, and strangers. Politically homeless better fits the Christian's true identity. Let's live into that identity. What do you guys say? Let's do it. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that the mirror of truth. And though sometimes, Lord, it feels like a harsh mirror with harsh lighting, Lord, it's always for our healing and restoration. Lord, thank you for the shock this morning that where we have followed in the ways of the culture with our speech and our cynicism and our unbelief of our our lack of charity lord just draw us out of that and draw us back into into the kingdom of heaven back into jesus lord where we would speak truth and love seasonably lord we would give the benefit of the doubt we would bless our enemies and not curse them and that our love lord would cover a multitude of sins even as your love O father has covered all of ours We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.